Well, good morning, church family. Welcome to God's house. I can't think of a better place to be on Sunday morning than here, can you? To all the dads, I want to say happy Father's Day to you. I know this is a special day for you, and I'm glad to see you here. Uh, My name is David Johnson. For those of you who might be visiting, uh, who don't know me, maybe, uh, my wife Susan and I are members here uh, at Westwood. This is our church home. We love Westwood. We love being here. We love being a part of your family. And I'm going to do something a little different here, okay? Um, So I'm going to turn this around. Uh, Also, Bethany, uh, our daughter and her family are members of the church. We love Westwood. And uh, we're glad to be a part of this church family. We want to welcome you to this service. For those of you who are online, and we want to welcome you to this service as well. Um, So part of the reason for the message that I'm teaching today is because you are my church family. And I do have a high level of love and respect for you. But that's only part of the reason that I'm teaching this message today. Three or four weeks ago, I was down in Mobile working. And just in the course of the week, I saw something that was so troubling and so heartbreaking to me. So as I went about my week from meeting to meeting to meeting, I came across not one, not two, not three, but four couples, Christian couples, who had recently separated or divorced. And let me just tell you, is that built, there was a weightiness that built inside of me that said, we, and I'm talking about Westwood, I'm talking about we the church, we really don't teach enough on marriage. We don't teach enough on holiness. We don't teach enough on righteousness. We don't teach enough on what's God's plan for those who are married and those who are not. As a matter of fact, I made a commitment to that day when I was driving back from Mobile, said, you know, the Lord, I'm going to teach on this the first opportunity you give me. Ironically enough, and yet I would say providentially enough, I got a text from Pastor Kenneth the next week and said, hey, Pastor Rick's going to go, he's going to spend time, you know, with Jordan, his son. Would you teach for us on Father's Day? And I said, I would and would love to, and this is what I would love to teach on. He said, David, if God gave you that word, then give it to our people. So that's what we're going to do today. I've entitled this message, The Second Greatest Gift. And you go like, the second greatest? David, I mean, really, usually we talk about the greatest gift, right? So what is? I'm going to be speaking specifically and primarily to dads and to husbands, but obviously I'm going to be teaching all of us. So what is the greatest gift? If we're going to be talking about the second greatest gift, what's the greatest gift that as dads, as parents, we can give to our children? It's the gospel, right? There is no better news than the gospel of Jesus's sacrificial atoning work on the cross. We should teach that, we should model that, we should pray over that for our children, right dads? Right moms? I mean, that's the greatest gift. But I believe the topic I'm teaching on today is the second greatest gift that we can give to our families. So we're going to talk about God's expectation and we're going to talk about the world's deception. Would you guys agree with me today that the world has been deceived about this topic? Man, let me tell you, we have gone off the rails 
So we're going to talk about what God's expectation is and what is the world's deception. So if you are writing down notes, now I, I love the Westwood app. I know we hardly ever hear about the Westwood app. But I use the Westwood app every Sunday I'm here because I'm filling in those blanks. Now, I'm a paper guy somewhat, and I like to fill the blanks in. So I don't have that. But if you were writing down notes, this is a point I would say, write this down because the word is purity. What is God's expectation for us? It's purity. So the definition of purity is the freedom from adulteration, immorality, or contamination. And let me just say, if you don't hear anything else that I say today, I want you to look at what Peter writes in 1 Peter, because if we could take away this, it will affect everything else. As obedient children, whose children? God's children, those who are a part of the faith family, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now this word conformed is exactly the same word in the Greek that Paul uses in Romans chapter 12 when he says, do not be conformed to this world. Now that word in the Greek literally means pressed into its mold. So we are not, and what Peter is saying is we're not to be pressed into the mold of the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy, pay attention, in all, all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's God's expectation of every one of us who are followers of his. So what's the world's deception? It's the word perversion. Everything outside of what we're going to be talking about today is world's, the world's perversion, the world's deception. So here's the definition. It's the alteration of something from its original course, meaning, or state to a, listen, a distortion of, the correction of what was first intended. So let me ask you, is what we're seeing in the world a distortion of? Is what we're seeing in the world today a corruption of? Absolutely. Paul actually gives a perfect description of this perversion. He talks about the world's deception in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous... So Paul's writing to the church, he's writing to believers, but here he's talking about unbelievers. He's talking about the unrighteous. He's saying, will not, unbelievers, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. But he says to the church, listen to me, church, do not be deceived. We live in a time where Satan and his demons are doing everything they can to deceive us. So he describes how the unsaved world, the pattern of their life looks like. He says, neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greed, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, as believers, that should not in any way be the pattern 
of our life. I'm going to make a phrase here. I think it's the phrase of the day, and that is sexual immorality is one of the greatest tools, if not the greatest tool that Satan uses to accomplish his agenda on the earth. Let me ask you, how's Satan doing? How's his demons doing? We don't have to look very far. I mean, we can't even watch Hallmark anymore. It is amazing what's happening in every commercial, in every movie, around every turn. What do we see? We see perversion. We see distortion. We see corruption. Listen to me, dads. Listen to me, husbands. We have to lead well. We have to study the word. We have to know what the word says. We have to teach them to our children when they're coming in and when they're going out. We have to model that for them. And we can't do that if we don't know it. Dad, you've got to spend time in the word every day. Don't let a single day go by. So we're going to look at three things today. We're going to look at three sections today. We're going to look at what does the Bible have to say about before I say I do, So this whole section is going to be on what is God's word? What does God expect of us who are unmarried? And then the second middle section is after I say I do. So what does God's word teach about us who are, who are husband and wife? What, is the, what does the word of God say about marriage? We have to know this. I'm trying to give you parents, give us parents tools to be able to teach and train up our children in the way God would have them to go. The last one is going to be after I say I don't. How do you teach your children about what God's word has to say about divorce and remarriage? Now, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so here we go. So we're going to break this down into three sections. There's going to be a key word and a focal point to each section. So the key word in section one, if you are writing this down or you're filling in the blank, I would say is the word celibacy. So the key word and what God expects is celibacy. What does that mean? It means abstaining from sexual relations. So here's the focal point. Before you start throwing stuff at me, I want you to see this through to the end with me, okay? So here's the focal point. Christians who are single are to stay sexually pure. God, but David, what's the problem with that? Here's where sometimes it gets a little bit dicey. For some people, while only dating people who are followers of Christ, I'm going to talk about that. God's word talks about that. So you as a dad may be sitting here today and going to, you know, David, I haven't done a great job with this. Well, let me tell you, none of us have done a great job at this. I mean, this is something we're all trying to learn. Let me just, let me just tell you, I'm trying my best today to teach the truth in love with understanding and thankfulness about mercy and grace and forgiveness, Right? I mean, God's word is convicting, and yet we don't get it right every time, but we're to be striving to get it right every time. So, Dad, you may be out there going, well, David, if I could take my kids to like one part of the Bible to teach this, and there's lots of parts, but if you could take it to one part of the Bible, what would it be? Let me tell you, we're going to go back. We're going to go way back. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning because I believe God in the book of Genesis set so many parameters and things in motion that's the foundation for everything else as it builds forward in the scripture. So look at what it says 
in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 because here is the foundation. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Stop. I don't know about you guys, but I've been hearing a whole lot lately, follow the science. Have you guys been hearing that? Well, let me just say, let's follow the science. You want to know what the science is? It's right here. You want to follow the creator of the science? It's right here. God has created this, and he says that here, and then he goes on to say, therefore, I've created this, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That phrase in the Greek, hold fast, literally means to be glued to, to be cemented to his wife, and they shall become one, one in every way. One physically, one spiritually, one emotionally, one even geographically. We're to become one in every way. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Listen to me, those of you who are in this room who are single adults. Anything outside of this is perversion. Anything outside of this is a lie. Anything outside of this is counterfeit. Why is it important to study this? Because this is truth. I, I, I love Bethany, our daughter, when she started her career, did some work in the banking industry. And so I would occasionally ask her, well, you know, how's it going? What are they teaching you in banking? And one day I asked her, I said, so, so this whole thing about counterfeit bills, how do they train you to be able to recognize what a counterfeit bill is? I said, do they like put these counterfeit 20s and 100s and 50s out in front of you? And do they teach you, you know, how the paper feels and what the ink looks like? And all? She said, oh, dad, no, 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 no. She said, I've never seen a counterfeit bill. She said, they teach us the authentic bill. They teach us the, how to feel the real paper, how to see the real color. How does the bill smell? What does it look like? What do the lines look like? How can we figure out what's authentic? Dads, how can we figure out what's authentic to teach our kids if we don't know what's authentic? We spend time in the word. This is what is authentic. It's the truth versus the lie. It's the real versus the fake. We have to teach it. We have to model it. Because let me tell you, we're on a slippery slope in our culture. And if we don't teach it, nobody else is. Nobody. If you're waiting on somebody else to teach this to your kids, man, you're making a major mistake. That, quite frankly, is how we got in the mess we're in today. So dads, I'm telling you the question's coming by either your son or your daughter or both. Can I date a non-believer? Your answer to them is not no, but absolutely no. You're going like, oh, come on, I've heard it all. Listen, I've, I was, I've been in full-time ministry 34 years. I've done over 300 weddings. Now think about the premarital counseling of over 300 weddings. Think about the postmarital counseling. Think about the counseling I've been in where people have literally gotten in my face and yelled at me for speaking the truth to them. I have seen it. I've seen what it looks like to be unequally yoked. It is not pretty. It is hard enough. Couples, would you not agree with me it's hard enough to live 
out the truth of the scripture with you being both believers? Can you imagine how hard that is with someone who's a non-believer? Look at what Paul says. Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light to do with darkness? And listen, I hear that deal. I hear that deception. When people say to me, yeah, but if I date somebody who's not a believer, I can lead them to Christ. Well, you could. You could also fall in love with a non-believer. You could also marry a non-believer. You could also be unequally yoked with a non-believer. The truth of the matter is, I want to teach my kids to be looking out for the godliest person to mate that they know. Let me tell you, dads, when your son comes to you and say, can I, I want to ask this girl out, your first question to them would be, is she a follower of Jesus? When your daughter comes to you and say, oh, dad, this guy who's so incredible, you're just going to love him. Don't you just love that, dads, when your daughters come? And they come to you and say, man, he's asked me out. Your first question should be, is he a follower of Jesus? Let me tell you, I've been so fortunate that I married the godliest teenage woman I'd ever met. You say, well, David, how did that work for you? Where we've been married 46 years. So let's move on. I'm already three minutes behind. Okay. So after I say I do, so what's the key word when we're teaching our kids about marriage? The key word is covenant. You know, it's interesting to me that we don't talk a lot about covenant, and yet we serve and we love a God who is a covenant God. So the word is covenant. The definition means to cut. So here's the focal point. Marriage Don't miss this, because we've just killed this in our culture. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. So just hold on to that for a second. And I want you to understand, all covenants in the Bible have blood associated with them. The marriage covenant first began in the Garden of Eden. Now, this is called the Edenic Covenant. You may be going like, well, how in the world is there blood associated with that? So we're going to go back. I told you all we were going to go back a lot. Because as we go back and we get our arms around it, then we can more successfully go forward. So in Genesis 2, it says, so the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. So this is the first time somebody's ever been put to sleep before. Little little pun there. And while he slept, he took one, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. You know, there are a lot of theologians that are saying about this. This is the first surgery that ever happened on planet Earth. As a matter of fact, there are so many theologians would say, as God opened up Adam's side, there was blood. And that he took the rib out. And he closed the flesh. And the rib that God, the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Every covenant connected to blood. He made man and then he made woman for man. So I want you to understand this is so powerful. Guys, you've got to teach this to your kids. A marriage contract 
is a person who is saying, I am limiting my responsibility and protecting my rights. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what contracts do. It limits responsibility while protecting rights. Look at every contract. But let me tell you, marriage is not a contract. So a marriage covenant is, is a person who is saying, I am surrendering my rights and assuming my responsibilities. So in other words, I'm saying I am no longer mine. First, I'm Jesus. And second, I'm Susan's. And I'm surrendering that. Because my responsibility is to do everything I can to identify her needs, meet her needs, love her, serve her. It is not about me. It is all about her. And then I'm assuming my responsibilities. Those are totally opposite of what a contract is. So you have to ask yourself the question, so, okay, David, what are my responsibilities? Dads, it's Father's Day. What's, what is my responsibilities? And yet, wives, you're one. You need to be hearing what's going on here. What are your responsibilities too? So I assure you, the question is going to come at some point, well, well Dad, what's, you know, what's, what is mom's number one need? At some point, somebody might ask, well, what's a, what's a man's number one need? Now, let me tell you, the culture has a whole bunch of different answers to that. But you know, the cool thing is that Paul answers both of those in one text. One text. So he goes to Ephesians chapter 5, and he answers what the number one needs are. And so what's the number one need of a woman? It's love. It's unconditional love. It's love where a man is trying not only to protect his wife, but is willing to die for his wife. And his actions and the way he shows love to her is absolutely proof of that. Paul wades in and says, well, let me tell you what the number one need of a woman is. Let me tell you. Let me tell you, husbands, what your role is in that. And that is husbands love your wives. And he gives us the how. Is Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? How did Christ love the church? He died for her. How did Christ love the church? He did everything he could to protect her. He did everything he did to encourage her. He did everything he could do to build her up. Husbands, that's what we need to be teaching our sons. That's what we need to be teaching our daughters, what they should expect and should not settle that's why the scripture says not to be unequally yoked because a non-believer has no concept of that. So what is the number one need of a man and what role does the wife, so wives and moms, this is kind of your part of the message. So here we go. What's the number one need of a man in the world in which we live? They would probably say sex, but that's not what Paul says. Paul says the number one need of a man is respect. So wives, submit to your own husbands. How? As unto the Lord. What does the Lord expect of us? To be fully devoted. To be fully sold out. And he says, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now listen to me carefully. Most people don't teach this. I don't know that I've ever really heard this said in a message. But I want you to understand that neither of these are conditional. Listen to me carefully. 
Husbands, you loving your wife like Christ loved the church is not conditional on whether or not she was very lovable that day. Now, I know your wife, that's never true, but I'm just, I'm just putting it out there. Listen to me, husbands. It says love your wife unconditionally, regardless if she has a bad hair day or not. Wives, you are to respect your husband even if he had a day when the last thing that he earned was your respect. This is unconditional. Let me tell you, I'm so thankful that Susan and I, let me tell you, Susan and I have way not gotten this right every time. Let me just tell you. Let me just tell you. We've been at this 46 years. We way don't get this right all the time. But I am thankful to say that we have two kids. They both got married in the same year. What's up with that? I mean, I'm going like, hang on a second. We have two kids, and you both chose to get married in 2004. Well, that was fun from a financial standpoint. But you know what I'm thankful for? Both my kids have been married for 18 years. Both of my kids understand love and respect. They don't get it right all the time either. Both of them are raising their kids into the fear and admonition of the Lord. Let me tell you, as the patriarch of our family, it's worth whatever it takes to do that and see that. Because you see, we have, we've lost honor for marriage. And yet Hebrews 13 says, let marriage be held in honor among all. And the order of this makes perfect sense. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. You see, what happens is when the marriage bed is defiled, then marriage is not being held in honor. For God will judge the sexual, immoral, and adulterous. Now, you may be sitting there going, man, Pastor David, I'm clear. I've never cheated on my wife. I've never cheated on my husband. Really? Hey, don't you just love Jesus? Don't you just love it when he takes all things to another whole level? Because he doesn't let us off there. Because he knows how strong this is. So he says, you have heard it, that it was said you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed to adultery with her in his heart. You see, it's not just what you do physically, it's what you do mentally. Wow, dads, we need to be teaching our kids. Not only that, dads, we need to be taking every thought captive. You want to know where it all starts? It all starts in your thought life. Wow. Could spend the rest of the day there, but I need to move on. So section three, after I say I don't, how, how do we teach our kids what the Bible has to say about divorce and remarriage? And how can we do that? And listen, let me just remind you, this is about truth and grace. So don't shoot the messenger here, okay? Because all I'm doing here is teaching what God's word has to say. And by the way, that's what you're to do. So the key word is Correction. The word, the word correction means a change that rectifies an error or a wrong. So here's the focal point. The focal point is that we're to be teaching and modeling that we're going to ask for and grant forgiveness while doing everything possible to reconcile. 
So parents, we have to teach our children that God is a forgiving and reconciling God. And if he is, then so are we to be. Now, you may have experienced a divorce. Um, In your situation, you both may not have remarried. There's an opportunity for forgiveness and reconciliation. Maybe you have divorced and one or both have remarried and there's not an opportunity from a marriage standpoint to reconcile. But it doesn't mean that there's not an opportunity to ask God's forgiveness and ask that person's forgiveness. Forgiveness and reconciliation is always to the Christian the first thing that we should be trying to accomplish. So let me just tell you, in all this counseling that I've done, Paul nails, absolutely nails what I have seen over and over and over and over. People who are going through a divorce, some of them even carry it for years. They carry it, the pain and the anger, and they carry all that stuff for years. And Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. So God's intention is not for you to be carrying all that around. God's intention is for us to be teaching our children what does God's word have to say. Paul goes on to say, here's what you should do as a follower of Jesus. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ, pay attention, as God in Christ forgave you. Let me just say to you in this room, regardless of the sin, unforgiveness will eat you alive. If Satan can have you in a spirit of unforgiveness, he has you right where he wants you. Because it will eat you alive. And oh yeah, let me say this. As love and respect is unconditional, hear me, forgiveness is conditional. Good. What do you mean? I can't teach this today, but I would encourage you to go back and read Matthew 6. I would encourage you to go back and read Matthew 18, where the scripture says, if you're not willing to forgive, then God the Father is not willing to forgive you. I'm not making that up. That's in the red letters. He goes on to say to the married, to the married, I give this charge, not yet, not I, but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or reconcile or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Let me tell you, there is a chance for people who have divorced and who have not remarried to go through forgiveness and to go through reconciliation, there is a chance. Now, I've had people look at me and even be in my face and say, there's no way under heaven. I said, so hang on a second. So let me get this right. So you're saying to the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of life, you're saying to the one 
who is going to control and hold your eternal destination in the palm of his hand. You're saying it's too big for him for you to reconcile? Come on. I have two friends that told me that. I have two friends who live in this city who don't go to this church. So let me help you out there. That's the thing going, well, I wonder who he's talking about. Nobody in this church. One year later, after praying and seeking reconciliation, the first one remarried his wife of his youth. The second one, and if he were here, I would say, well, you're a little slower. Three years later, he reconciled and married the wife of his youth. Don't tell me for one second that forgiveness and reconciliation can't happen because I've seen it, and it can. So what's the takeaway? I may not be as good as takeaway as Pastor Kenneth is, but we're going to have one anyway. So what's the takeaway? Do not be deceived into thinking that you can tame sin. Let that rock around for a second. I don't know how many of y'all, because I'm kind of dating myself, I don't know how many of y'all remember the entertainment group Siegfried and Roy. So they were these German entertainers. They entertained all over the world. They were known for training up white tigers. And they would train these tigers and they would do these shows. They did them all over the world. They thought they had one of their tigers of seven years trained. They thought they had one of their tigers of seven years tamed. In October of 2003, while on stage, something clicked in that tiger's mind that all of a sudden he said, I'm a tiger. And I'm getting ready to do what tigers do. And he attacked. He pounced. There was blood everywhere. It was a bad scene. And that was Roy Horn's story. Matter of fact, he lost so much blood that he had a stroke. He did not die, but the rest of his life he was changed. You see, you might think you can tame sin, but that's also a dangerous place to be. Because the truth of the matter, sin is always, as the scripture says, crouched at the door. What does sin and Satan do? Sin and, state, sin and Satan seeks to what? Kill, steal, and destroy. So what is our response? Dads, what should we practice? Dads, what should we teach? The only correct response is to flee from its grasp. Paul writes, flee from sexual immorality. So what do we need to do, dads? What do we need to do? Moms, what do we need to do? We need to go back again. Kind of like, man, David, I've never seen anybody look in the rearview mirror as much as you do. We got to go back. Go back to Genesis 39. You want to know how to handle these kind of situations? Go back. Read it to your kids all the time and look at what Joseph did. Because when Joseph was being pursued by Potiphar's wife, he didn't try to tame that. He ran from that. So the question we have to ask is, you know, what is God's expectation? It's holiness, it's righteousness, it's purity in all 
your conduct. I'm so thankful that God has given us this. I'm so thankful that the God that we serve is a God who loves us and realizes that we make mistakes. And we realize that he will forgive us and he'll place our sin, praise God, as far from the east as from the west. But let's take this teaching and let's go out of here today and apply it to every area of our life. 